listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. You know, one of the things um, that I've seen or we've seen uh, podcasting over the last year, uh, when it comes to wildlife and wildlife management, conservation, and research around that, Alberta and the University of Alberta is kind of a real hub, like an epicenter for, let's just kind of say, smart people in this field. And, you know, we've, on our on our show, we've had uh, Dr. Clayton Lamb, um, of course, did uh, his PhD at the University of Alberta. We've had uh, Dr. Ando Droge on, um, mm-hmm. doing uh, polar bear conservation uh, podcast last summer. Uh, Dr. Rob Soroya has been on our show. He's um, with the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute in the university. Um, we, you know, outside the university, we've had um, Director of Fish and Wildlife Policy, Matt Besco on. That uh, was a lot of fun. And yeah, I can imagine. We, um, we've yet to have Stan Booten and Mark Boyce on, so we haven't had them on the show yet. So if they're listening, we're, we're coming for you eventually. So, <laughs> and... Um, we did a really interesting episode last summer with an arch- retired archaeologist uh, that lives in Edmonton, and he was the archaeologist that was instrumental in establishing the international significance of head smashed in buffalo jump. Yeah. So if you wanted to listen to a podcast that was okay. totally different, um, Jack Brink uh, and the head smashed in mm-hmm. last summer was pretty cool. But that's all Alberta. Uh, and that's all, all the university and, um, just, I, so what is it about the university of Alberta and Alberta that attracts people like this? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. It's, you know, it's been great for me. I've been here for a long time and, you know, many of the folks that you mentioned, I've gone to listen to and a couple of them I've worked with. And that, that's a, that's really the the fun part of research for me is working with other people who are so good at their discipline and I can learn from them and maybe contribute a bit to the projects overall. Um, I'm a a big fan of uh, interdisciplinary kinds of research. I think it's pretty tough for any one person or discipline to solve some of the big problems that we're facing and whether it's climate change or chronic wasting disease or various other things. So it's really good to work as teams, and U of A's been a great place to work as a team member on a bunch of those projects. Well, so it's it's not the winters in Edmonton <laughs> that are so so nice. It kind of yeah. like attracts everybody. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a big university, so that's attractive to people. That there's lots of other uh, folks to work with, and there's you know you, people know that there are good scholars here that they want to come to work with them. So that just kind of builds. Uh, yeah, just like to work with each other, and yeah. you know when you when you ramp you know research uh, from the university up to policy uh, in the province of Alberta, and you have someone like Matt as the director, um, yeah. he, he seems to me as a man that is like one foot in science and one foot in 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 policy and he, he just seems like he does a fantastic job in his tenure of making sure that that connection is there and yeah i i completely agree and you know he's he's come to our presentations he's always engaged asked some great questions 
Um, you know, a couple of his colleagues, uh, Margo Pibus and Ann Hubs, I work with them closely on the chronic wasting. These fantastic folks to work with. So, you know, they, they help me understand where they're coming from and the kind of problems they're facing and uh, what can I do to help inform what they're trying to think about through policy. So it's, it, it's been really a really good relationship. I think it's a good way to try to address these problems. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Alberta is really doing, I think, a fantastic job in conservation and, and wildlife management. So, and this, uh, this, I think, is part of it. So your policymakers and your researchers are kind of like a half hour apart in, yep. in the city. So awesome. Yep. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. It's uh, Mark Hall here, your host. Yeah, and Curtis Hall co-host and um we're welcoming uh onto the show today uh dr vic uh adam adamovitz i even practiced and then i kind of got it wrong that's all right that's close say, enough. vic is easier to say yeah so, so, so uh, thanks mark and curtis so pronounce pronounce it again adamovich adamovich there you go i should have made the o big then i would have pronounced <laughs> it right adamovich Perfect. so so, um, Vic, you are the vice dean of the Faculty of Agricultural Life and Environmental Sciences. That's correct. And that's still correct. And a professor in the Department of Resource Economics and Environmental Sociology at the university. That's correct. We have the longest titles for our faculty and department I, names. I was, <laughs> I was, I was going to bring this up. We have a ministry here in British Columbia called the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development. Seems like every uh, government that comes in adds a couple more names to the end of that ministry, and and um, I I think they got you beat, but it's it's uh, those are some pretty pretty long titles. So they are, yeah, yeah. So so obviously Vic is at the uh, University of Alberta in Edmonton, as we we're talking about a real epicenter of smart people in, in Canada. So your, your research areas of uh, kind of areas of focus and instruction uh, are in the fields of uh, economic analysis in environmental management, um, environmental valuation. Uh, is that kind of looking at like the value of things in the environment, the value of things in nature, um, consumer behavior, economic tools for conservation, uh, economics of endangered species conservation. Um, so you've done um, some research in the endangered caribou in Canada from sort of that yep. economic perspective. So, um, so that all boils down to you're an economist. I'm an economist by training. There you yep. go. That's a first for us on our show. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, let Vic walk everybody through here how how an economist is is uh, playing an important role here in uh, in uh, wildlife management in in Canada. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's it's been a, it's it's a good place to be because I think it's uh, you know a lot of a lot of management of natural resources is really about the people and you know what what are people enjoying? How do we provide opportunities for people? Um, how do we manage those resources? And you know, we we certainly have to know the the natural resource science, environmental science, and all the rest. But a, a lot of it comes down to people, and mm-hmm. that's really what economists study. Economists are studying. Usually, they study people in markets. What kind of choices do they make? What purchases do they make? And I've just always been interested in the environmental side of economic behavior. It's, 
people spend money to go hunting. They make choices. Um, they're interested in clean air and clean water. And that's an important part of the economy that doesn't get measured usually in the standard economic metrics. So exactly. I've spent a lot of time trying to think about how do you weave those things that are still really important to people, endangered species, wildlife viewing, how do you weave those into those economic decision-making approaches? Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a really important piece of the overall puzzle. Absolutely. And especially when you get into the more complex land management decisions, there are those weighing options uh, and making those economic trade-offs, right? Um, exactly. So that's, that is, like you said, you're, you're a piece of that, that larger collaborative team that is, is needed in conservation and, and management yeah, nowadays. You- you, you've hit it. You hit the nail on the head. It really often is about trade-offs, and it, you know, I often those trade-offs are in kind of dollar terms. That you know, there's the cost to industry, the cost to the public, and so if we don't have some way to measure things like environmental quality in those dollar terms, we can't actually make those trade-off decisions very easily, or they or they don't get valued in the same way. And so that's that's one of the reasons I do what I do is to try to put everything on an even playing field so we can compare that environmental quality piece along with you know, whatever the, the more traditional economic outcomes are. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, it is, it is very interesting um, aspect of, of conservation and, and even hunting, you know, for me, kind of the, the, mm. the, the, the dollar side of it. Um, where I first saw you was on, on July 7th, you did the webinar um, for the um, Chronic Wasting Disease Resource Center um, of SIDRAP, which is the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy through the University of Minnesota. And you mm-hmm. did uh, your presentation on the human dimension of chronic wasting disease, implications for management and surveillance. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're here. Uh, I was just thoroughly interested in, in what you talked about. And at the end of your presentation, um, I think the host said, you know, if you want to reach out to uh, Vic, if you have any questions or whatever. And I was like, I shot you an email right away, said, hey, would you like to come on a podcast? So so that's um, th- that's how we got you here. So, I mean, I've always, always had uh, an interest in all the other sciences, the, you know, the socioeconomic, the human dimensions, the behavior stuff and coupling that into, you know, conservation and wildlife management. And, um, it's definitely a, um, I think it's a big piece that's missing, um, Hmm. you know, at least in our province, British Columbia and, and, you know, maybe in other provinces in, in Canada, they seem to be a little bit more tapped in down in the United States with these types of, um, you know, research studies and analysis to, you know, go to a decision maker to make policy decisions in wildlife management. They seem to have more of the socioeconomic and the biological stuff at hand where a lot of times, you know, here, especially in British Columbia, we don't. So kind of, yeah, that, that may be true. That's a, that's an interesting point. I mean, I work a lot with colleagues in the U S and, and elsewhere. And, you know, I think one of the issues is just data collection. Um, they're, you know, if you're collecting data annually the way that the U.S. does on angling or recreational hunting or other things, then, then you've got databases that you can just track and you can see trends and see changes through time. And that's uh, we don't quite have that to the same extent in, in Canada. It's something that would be wonderful if, if we did. I know we've tried a, 
a few times the federal government has tried and others have tried, but that's uh, and that's kind of one of the cornerstones, whether it's uh, human dimensions or natural sciences, having that data is critical. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I don't know if you feel this way. I've talked to other researchers that said they would just love to have like one-tenth the budget that some of the uh, institutions and state agencies down in the U.S. have, you know, they'd be like, you know, oh, we have like four people that do that, <laughs> that, yeah. that work. So, yeah. um, Sort of before we get into um, your case study in Alberta and, and, and the research you've been involved in, uh, just I think we should just set the stage kind of on a few things here. And so, so how and why, as an economist, did you get involved in the, in the chronic wasting disease research in Alberta? Yeah, there are uh, a couple of reasons. And, you know, chronic wasting disease is just one way to think about um, a change in environmental quality. So chronic wasting disease is affecting cervids. Um, people hunt cervids, they uh, enjoy viewing cervids, um, you know, important to indigenous people. So part of the question is what are the impacts on, on people if we have increasing spread and prevalence of chronic wasting disease? Are people going to um, not go hunting as often? Are they not going to enjoy their hunting as much? Are they going to change where they go from their preferred locations to other locations? Are they going to be worried about chronic? So all of those are going to affect their behavior. That's that's going to affect their satisfaction. And that's uh, partly what, what economists are interested in. And we're interested in behavior and we're interested in, in whether people are actually getting what, they're, what they'd like to do, what they choose to do. Um, and if something is making that situation worse, uh, we're trying to measure the impact of that. What's the economic loss associated with some downturn in environmental quality? You know, we've been we've been focused on chronic wasting disease. We've looked at you know, fishing quality. We've looked at water quality and you know different kinds of recreation. And all of those are just ways to relate the environment to what people do and what people's activities are. Right. Right. Now the. I sort of mentioned it like that, that term, um, the field of study, like human dimensions is, is that, is that a, is that a term that you like, or is it not descriptive of <laughs> your field? It's. That's, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, um, I think human dimensions is, is sort of a broad term. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion about human dimensions of wildlife, um, we actually, we, we have an undergraduate degree in, in, in um, environmental conservation sciences, and you can choose a human dimensions major, or you can choose an environmental economics major. So sometimes economics is put into a slightly different camp in human dimensions, maybe more sociology, political science, anthropology. I, I don't mind having them lumped together. We're all social scientists. We're all interested in human behavior. We're interested in what are, what are people's perceptions of things? What are their satisfactions? Uh, how acceptable do they view different policies? What's the level of trust they have in different agencies? Um, I'm interested in that and the extent that it affects behavior and, and economic outcomes and other people are interested in, it informs policy, it you know, helps us design policies where the community can buy into them and trust the agencies. So okay. it's an important piece of the puzzle. and. 
you know, if you looked at the places that I tend to publish, it'll be journals with the word economics in it. So environmental economics journal or an ecological economics journal, but also in you know, human dimensions of wildlife or journals like that, just because it's, uh, you know, it all, it, there's an overlap between all those different disciplines. Okay. No, that, uh, that makes sense. So I didn't, I just uh, thought I'd ask that and say, cause if I sort of use the, the term human dimensions, you know, study or research, I didn't want you to be like cringing going, no, that's not what I, <laughs> that's not, yeah. that's not what we call it here. So, yeah, um, but no, one, it's one small slice. So of it's a, it's, it's a big yeah. bucket. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is kind of like saying you're a wildlife scientist or something. It's yeah. like, well, what does that mean? Right. It's like, yeah, exactly. Um, so so pe- people will probably appreciate, you know, speaking of wildlife scientists, it's like, wh- what do you do? Well, I, I study wildlife, or even if you said I study grizzly bear behavior, they can probably get a sense that, okay, this person's putting a GPS collar on bears and, you know, when do they den and where do they go and what do they eat? So you're, you're coming at um, this field from a different angle through the human beings. So what are some of the tools you use? Like, obviously you're not putting GPS collars on people, but I have seen that there, there are, there's a researcher at the university of Georgia that studies wild turkeys and Dr. Mike Chamberlain, and he does studies where they have GPS collars on wild turkeys, on their predators and on the hunters. So he's doing studies where he's looking at the relationship between how do turkeys behave when hunters are on the landscape. But, yeah. but so what, yeah. what are some of your tools? Yeah, I, it, it's, a, it's a good question. So just thinking about, I've, I've often made the joke that I would, I would love to have uh, GPS on people just so I can know where they go and what they're doing. Of course, that, that's the challenge of working in the human dimensions areas. We, we can't easily design and set up experiments like that. Um, quick aside, though, we, we are actually piloting, thanks to uh, support from Alberta Innovates and the Alberta Conservation Association, um, having folks voluntarily uh, provide us with information from their smartphones of, of where they're going hunting, what are they seeing. Uh, years ago, Mark Boyce was a pioneer in this. He developed a, the Moose app, where it was an app for smartphones and people could report when they saw a moose. And we're kind of modifying or maybe taking that to another level where voluntarily people would provide us with that kind of information. So it might help for informing uh, wildlife conservation decisions. It helps me understand where people are going and how often they're going. And it's early days, um, but we're not the only ones doing that. There are people voluntarily providing that kind of data so we can study transportation behavior, whether you take a bus or your car or your bicycle to your work. And if things change, do you change your behavior? So. So it's not exactly GPS callers, but um, there may be something down the road where we're getting data that way. Uh, still early days. And again, it's, it's voluntary that people have to provide that information uh, based on their own will. I mean, what, what do we normally do? We find ways to have what I call conversations with people. They, they, whether those are in-person discussions, surveys, we do a lot of surveys. Um, surveys of different kinds, those have changed over the years. We will look at, at data that you might think about as collected in aggregate. So how many hunting licenses have been sold this year? What's, what's the demand for um, tags for mule deer in different wildlife management units in the province? How does that change over time? 
Um, so those are different kind of pieces of data, either from individuals who are telling us about what they're doing, where they're going, what their views are, what their opinions are, or information because they've made a purchase or they've uh, taken some other choice and we've got information about it, purchasing a license, purchasing a tag, putting in a draw application. Yeah, It's all data about people and what they're doing. Now, you, you mentioned surveys. Um, are online surveys, like we do see those, you know, uh, more and more now, are they, are they a valid form of data collection on, on, you know, people's thoughts and perceptions and stuff for, for, for robust science? So I think if the answer to that question is, I think it depends. This is always the answer that economists give you. It depends. <laughs> um, and it, and it depends on how good, how well you're actually trying to implement the, the study and what kind of precautions or other things you're trying to take. So what are the challenges of surveys? Well, first thing, you've, you've got to figure out who you're going to send the surveys to, whether it's an internet survey or a mail survey or telephone surveys. Um, who's going to answer? Well, if, if it's not a random sample of the population, maybe you're getting a biased view. We call that a non-response bias, that maybe there's only a certain group of people who respond to your survey, then you're not getting an accurate picture of what the, the entire population actually thinks. And survey companies always face that, whether it's general population surveys or other types of surveys, are they getting a good sample of people? Part of that is just being careful sampling and, and part of it is worrying about this non-response bias issue. So that's something that, that we worry about a lot. Yeah. Um, within the survey design itself there's there's a lot of work we do a, we do a lot of testing of our survey questions we'll test things um, in experimental labs to see if they're getting the kind of information that we want we worry about questions that aren't structured very well it's not perfect yet i mean it's an, it, it try the best we can but we worry a lot about questions that we want people to tell us you know, what they're really thinking about or the trade-off that they would really make. And so we've got to be careful designing the question because um, there are other kinds of biases that you can run into that. Yeah. There's something called social desirability bias that it's sometimes it's difficult to give somebody an answer if you're having an in-person conversation about something because it's not a you know, socially acceptable response. Well, how do you get that response? If that's really what the person thinks, how can I design a survey or design a data collection method to get what they really think about? Yeah. So it's a concern, not a, not a perfect set of tools or instruments for sure, but um, you know, that's why we try to collect as much data as we can on what people are actually doing, you know, the extent that, that we get that information. And then we ask them questions about what they would do in different circumstances, about what their opinions are about different management options. And we try to collect those data in a, the best way possible. Right. Okay. There, there are pitfalls. Yeah. You must cringe when you see some of the stuff that's out there. Surveys. 79% there, of the respondents said X. You're going, Hey, yeah. wait a minute. So. There's uh, well, you know, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of the, the kinds of things you hear about electoral polls often fall into this category. Why do, why were the polls so wrong in the last election in this place or in that place? And often you can you dig into it. In fact, there's a there's a group out of the United States that goes back and reanalyzes all those things, and and they usually dig into it and find that its sampling was not really covering the representative group of the population, or there was you know, some other difficulty associated with the 
response that people were giving. And so we keep learning about how to do them better. Yeah. Um, but you can find the reasons that these things don't match up with what people actually did in a, in an election. And that carries over to what people would do in their choices of where to go hunting. Um, can I design a survey that helps me understand what they would do if conditions changed um, so that it would really be accurate? Yeah. Well, we had, I don't know if you followed it, but we had a very famous policy decision and survey um, back in 2017 here in British Columbia when um, the province closed the grizzly bear hunt. And it was supposedly based on um, the results of a survey that were ran by an independent poll company and um yeah i'd written articles about it and i did exactly what you did and i went back and i'm kind of like okay you didn't you know get a minimum sample size to you know or your margin of error was this or whatever and but it was it was too late it was it was gone it was like 79 percent of the people of british columbia said x or whatever and you know they were polling um electoral zone separately and then pooling all the data and yeah anyways um that's a whole yep. other podcast yep. but um uh... so so your your um your presentation that that um that that i saw earlier this month um you can't you started off with your your case study um on chronic wasting disease in alberta and i thought maybe um, I've been following this, you know, kind of what's going on there with chronic wasting disease for, for a while now, but m- maybe give give people a little bit of the background on, you know, just what's what's happening in Alberta with with this disease. Sure. So I, I can try. I, I, let, let me start by saying I've been working uh, on the, the human dimensions or the economic side of chronic wasting disease since about... 2007 something in that in Mm. in that range getting you know starting to get interested in these issues and and we've been doing surveys uh for for quite quite a long period of time um great support supported by the you know the alberta government the fish and wildlife divisions funding support from alberta innovates from um genome canada genome alberta Uh, the alberta prion research institute has been a, a really strong supporter of our work most recently the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute. So wide range of support just to kind of keep this set of research projects going. So what, what's been what's been happening in, in chronic wasting disease in Alberta? So we've, and it'd be great to be able to, to show you some of the maps and, and graphs, but we've, we've gone from very few cases in the, er, the early surveillance started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the identification of chronic wasting disease, mostly along that eastern border with Saskatchewan, or between Edmonton and, and, and down to the U.S. border. So we've had uh, prevalence rates increasing to now the overall provincial prevalence rate is, is somewhere around 15, 15 uh, sorry, around 13 percent was the 2019. Um, it's over 15 percent in mule deer, particularly high in male mule deer. Um, some of the wildlife management units now are, are showing male mule deer prevalence or percent infected that are 30, 40% um, information's publicly available. So it's um, you know, mostly, mostly deer, mostly mule deer, mostly males, yeah. but we've, we've had moose. Um, I think last year there were two moose identified as testing positive. This is all public information. Um, uh, elk, 
no no sign of uh, of uh, CWD in caribou, but that's obviously one of the one of the concerns, both in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So Saskatchewan and Alberta are sort of the places with the with the spread and prevalence of chronic wasting disease in the wild population. Yeah, yeah, I know it's um, that that's one of the things that's really really been shocking me following this story in Alberta is just the huge jump, um, you know, in just the last couple of years and the prevalence rate. Um, it's, it's, um, pretty, pretty shocking. And, and I think I saw, I saw some stuff earlier this year that, um, for the first time, um, CWD positive deer were being picked up down closer to Calgary, but West towards the Rockies, um, which is kind of, I, I gather sort of a new area um, from that eastern central area along the border you were talking about, where it's yeah, where it's that's right. Up. It's yeah, it's sort of marching its way west and um, has been moving north, and of course is already at the southern border with with the U.S. So that's yeah. um, that seems to be the directions, and of course the my colleagues in the ecology side of the world are projecting where the spread will occur and. You know, trying to get some accurate information because that will help with management. If we have a good sense of where those um, the CWD might spread to, then we can start thinking about how to manage the spread. Absolutely, and yeah, we've had a had a research or a, a wildlife manager from the province on our show last year um, that had done some mule deer work and collared mule deer, uh, and absolutely shocking information of these deer going from southeastern British Columbia where we live clear like diagonally through the Rockies way over into like the Kananaskis area mm. hanging out for a little bit and then turn around and coming back so um, there's there's a conduit between you know um, the deer populations on the east and west side of the Rockies so yep. CWD deer positive deer pushing west in Alberta is is definitely pushing up against um yeah. up against the populations in bc so um there there was also there was also an effort when as i recall when the cases started crossing the saskatchewan border um i think the first hunter um positive cwd positive deer in alberta was around 2005 and then yep. you know they started seeing more and more and more kind of like moving in from saskatchewan the province started like an aerial like culling campaign which yes. apparently was not overly popular <laughs> and, and 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 it got stopped and i i know i've talked to people that kind of figured that that's when sort of the battle was lost so to speak and and it was a uh, you know, definitely a, a public perception thing. So, yeah, I think, I mean, you're, you're right. The, the Alberta program, if I've got my dates right, began in, in actually, um, 98. So okay. your, your jump on things. First detection was, was in 2005. Um, and in many ways, I think it, it's been great that we've had this, this long-term program that's been tracking, really in, in terms of, of wildlife health, trying to understand what's been happening with chronic wasting disease. But you know, your, your description of the attempt to, to slow down the disease in the early years, I think there's a signal of the importance of the human dimensions, if you, if you like that word, um, that you know, it, it really is a complicated set of decisions because there are people with different ideas about risk and different perceptions about what the best management option is. And 
that's partly why we do our work is to get a sense of you know what what is the public worried about what kind of management options would they support um, what information do they need that might help make those kind of decisions what do the different groups in society think about the different options uh, yeah. i think all of that is uh all of that's pretty important in, in making these kinds of decisions absolutely now kind of um i'll get you to dig into a little bit in, in into some of your work so um you started doing surveys of hunters um, and sort of in relation to chronic wasting disease in hunting in Alberta going back to 2007 and, right. and maybe kind of walk through a little bit of of what what you sort of were looking at various aspects of, you know, hunters and hunting and their relationship to CWD. Right. So we're, we've always been interested in what are they doing? You know, where are they going? How often are they going? You know, we, we call this a sort of technical jargon. This is what we call revealed preference data. So this is what people are, are actually doing. And that tells us what, what they're interested in. So they're interested in hunting in these particular regions. They're interested in hunting mule deer. So it's important to know that and ideally to see how that might change over time. And maybe it changes in response to different kinds of conditions. So that's, that's part of what we try to collect. And then we try to understand maybe how people make those decisions about where to go and, and how often to go. Um, we've been collecting information about whether they're worried about chronic wasting disease um, in terms of its impact on wildlife health or on human health. Uh, we've been collecting information from them about different policy options that they might see as uh, effective ones or ones that they could support. Um, you know, we have been, of course, reading the literature of what's been happening in the United States where they've tried several different kinds of management options and some have been successful and some haven't. And, and so we're exploring those with uh, the hunter populations and with other populations, with the general public, with um, outfitters, with other groups. So I, I think uh, you know, with Indigenous people, these are all parts of the human dimensions equations. Um, and, you know, even things like where do they get their information from? One mm. of the sources of information, um, which, which is kind of an interesting one. It's actually, it's actually quite diverse. Um, podcasts are in there, but not a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. The, yeah. And so this, this is where, where hunters are getting their information about chronic wasting disease, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And word of mouth and, and outdoor magazines and web websites are still, still the popular ones, but it's pretty diverse um, of where people, social media is, increasing in importance it seems so uh lots of different places that people can get their information or get the 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 word and the information is being being spread in a more diverse way now that's what it, that's my sense yeah. yeah yeah now one of the things you said you looked you, you you looked at was um like hunters uh and and their their choice of where where they go hunting um, hunting locations in in relation to, you know, um, CWD prevalence, and so what were you finding? Like, were hunters like backing away from areas when they were learning about there's more CWD in that management zone, so people less people are going there. That intuitively would, if you had to guess first or hypothesize, that's what I would hypothesize. If somebody said, oh, that's got 50% over there and that has like five, everybody would move management zones. And is, is that what's happening? Yeah, that's, a, well, first of all, let me say that, that hunters are not all the same. 
So of course you've got some hunters who uh, just say I've stopped hunting in those wildlife management units because CWD is there, or you know, I'm, you hear a few cases where they just stopped hunting entirely. So there's th that side of the spectrum all the way to people who are not concerned about chronic wasting disease in, in the sense that they'll continue to hunt in their region. So you can't sort of paint everybody with one brush and say hunters do this. Uh, what we do see though in the data that we've been collecting in a couple of different ways uh, is that on average we're not getting people uh, changing locations, changing where they hunt, um, changing their activity levels in response to chronic wasting disease um, on average. As okay. I say there's some, there's some who are, that's, that's definitely true. Um, that doesn't mean that people aren't worried about chronic wasting disease. No, there's a difference. That's, they're they're concerned right. or they're worried about it, but am I willing to change what I've been doing for the last 20 years? Those exactly. are those are different things you're saying. Exactly. And there and there are people who perhaps they don't they, they don't think chronic wasting disease is is a, a human health risk, so they don't worry about it in that sense. There are others who are concerned about it and they make sure their meat is tested and they make sure that they, you know, disinfect their their materials. So you still might see that they're, they're both engaging in the same amount of hunting as they have in the past, but they just have different levels of concern or, or risk preference. So when, in the surveys that we've been doing, and we've been for the last three years, we've, we've been doing fairly intense surveys, uh, um, focusing on mule deer hunters within the province of Alberta. And let's say overall average, we haven't seen an adverse impact of chronic wasting disease yet. Now, I know that in the literature on, in the U.S. On hunters. On hunters. Yeah, okay. On where, you know, how often they're going, where they're going, um, at least in terms of that behavior. That's true also if you if you look at the purchases uh, of draw licenses of where the demand for draw licenses is. We, uh, we just completed a study looking at many years of draw license applications and you know, if people were worried about chronic wasting disease, maybe they wouldn't be putting that draw in for that particular wildlife management unit. But we don't see that in the data. Um, does, that chronic wasting disease hasn't had an impact on the demand for draw licenses. Mm -hmm. But one thing I have I have to say, and this is something that's that's come up in the in the review process and in the literature uh, that folks are saying, well, maybe it's actually not at a level yet that it's raised these kinds of concerns in Alberta that. When prevalence hits 30, 40, 50% in places in the US, then they've seen a real decline in hunter population or hunter activities. So that's one of the possibilities. Um, it could be that you know, people are, the risk preferences are different or they wait for the test results to come back. So it's a whole range of different reasons why this might happen. Um, but at least for now, we're not seeing that significant of a change in behavior. So the threshold from the studies down in the States is getting up in that 30, 40, 50 kind of percent. And then in, in a, in a few to... locations. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's one of the, the things we've seen in the literature. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when a community starts to get where 50% of the hunters are disposing of their meat after they've got the test results back, then that, could be the threshold that's impacting pe people's perception right. and, and behavior and going, they're realizing like, I'm not going to be the anomaly here. I'm probably going to go out and harvest the deer that's CWD positive and have to throw it away or dispose of right. it. So 
That's interesting. Yeah. That's a pretty high number to like people start to get worried at that level. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know what that we don't know what that number is exactly, but that's that's one of the hypotheses is okay. that uh, you know the, the prevalence levels may still be I mean in some WMUs the prevalence levels are pretty high, but you know, by overall they they still aren't as high as in as in some locations outside of Canada. So that's one of the possibilities. Hmm. Um, and you know, I think in in the longer run, if, uh, if CWD continues to increase in prevalence, then you get an impact on wildlife populations, and of course, that itself will have an impact on, on hunter satisfaction and hunter activities if the wildlife populations start to decline. Yeah, definitely, because what, what I've seen in one well, what you described earlier there is male mule deer are are in Alberta displaying the highest prevalence rates. So over time your larger and older bucks are what being the disease is taking out of the population. And of course, for hunter satisfaction, if they're hunting and they're looking for a particular, you know, size of mule deer buck with certain size antlers and stuff, and they're just gone from the landscape, then that's going to diminish um, yep. interest in, in hunting a particular area. But yeah, exactly. I, I did find it interesting though, that you were kind of finding that on average, that hunters weren't changing their activities where they like to go hunting based on on the CWD prevalence. And it it kind of shows to me that, you know, on average, um, it's a, a lot of the things that are important to hunters uh, are those, those, you know, um, ancillary reasons why you go hunt, right? Like our family's been going here for 20 years, camping in the same meadow, going on that same ridge. And it's that tradition and ritual that's the hunt, not whether they actually are getting anything. And, and they're very, um, and, and I do believe hunters are very um, like married to that aspect of hunting of those rituals and traditions. So that, 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 what you're finding is makes a bit of sense to me that way. So yeah, I, I think the way you described it is, is exactly right. I mean, the, the harvest is is a part of it, and it's an important part of it. But it is a it's an overall experience. It's a social experience, you know, whether it's family or family and friends. Um, it's all those things that's wrapped into that that overall activity. And you know, I think that you know that that's what we're seeing is that just as you've said, it's really important to people that they want the opportunity to do that. And at least for now chronic wasting disease on average hasn't had uh, a detrimental impact. And, you know, part of it is that you, you can test and you can get those test results back and, um, you know, you can reduce any, any concern you have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that helps from the human health side. I should say one, one of the questions we've asked for the last couple of years is uh, asking people why they submitted the heads for testing. And in, in the many wildlife management units in Alberta, it's, it's mandatory. And so that's what people said. It's mandatory. Um, but it was about a 50-50 split between people who said it's because I'm worried about wildlife populations or I'm worried about risks to my family. So the, the program is is really a program for wildlife management and the submission of heads is intended to inform wildlife management. Um, but it's as far as the hunters are concerned, the split is about 50-50 as to why they're interested in getting those results back. Half wildlife population interest and half uh, concerns for their family right and and not necessarily just because the law requires them to that's very interesting Correct. yeah that's yep. very interesting now one of the other areas that you looked and i'll get you to talk a little bit about what you found here was um 
hunters' perceptions of risk when it comes to um, uh, when they consume the meat or if they gave it away, what their risk perceptions were to people and the risk perceptions were to wildlife. What what's what was kind of happening over yeah. over the over the term of, of your study? Yeah, so that that's one that's always been interesting. First of all, that just shows that people are very different. Um, they're they're the. I would say the majority of people say they, they don't eat or give away the meat before they get a test result back. But there's a sizable group that, and this has stayed pretty constant over time, that has said, no, I eat or give away the meat before I get the test results back. And that, that to me is just a, an indicator of risk perception um, that you know, the, on, the one, on the one hand, the group is concerned and they're waiting for these results to come back. On the other hand, there's another group that's that's not that concerned about it and uh, is willing to eat or give away the meat. So it's kind of a risk perception, not asked in this way of what do you think the risk is associated with consuming chronic waste meat. We're actually asking them what they do. Do you consume or give away the meat before you get the test results back? That's a kind of an interesting indicator that we've used. Yeah. So so what what are what are kind of the the numbers there? Like what? what percentage or what portion would you attribute to ones that are saying they're not waiting? Yeah. I, th I mean, that's, so this is a sort of strongly agree to strongly disagree. So in the categories where people are agreeing that they give away the meat or, or eat it before the test results are coming back and we've, we've got kind of 25, 30% of people within those categories, maybe a bit more depending on the year. But the majority, I would say that sort of 50, 60% are in the no, I wait for the test results okay. category. Back. Okay. But it's spread across the spectrum. You know, I think one interesting thing, and, and uh, we haven't seen this as much in our data, but it's been in the, in the U.S. data out of, out of Wisconsin and Illinois, that um, over time, people get used to these kinds of risky situations. And they... Uh, that's certainly come true in some of some of uh, Jerry Vasky's studies, for example, and he's just done a ton of research on this topic in the United States. It shows that that risk risk perception has declined over time associated with chronic wasting disease, um, where it's been steady for other kinds of risks that that people have have faced. So it's kind of a familiarity. I'm not as concerned about it anymore. It's been around for a while. That's something that you often see in the in the risk human behavior literature right so so just so everybody understands so what you're saying is it's like it it's not the risk or what chronic wasting disease does to animals it's what people think of it like right. they it's the, it's the perception when it first came out everybody was freaked out um super cautious um, kind of like covid uh and then after a while it's just sort of like becomes part of your life and, and you're no different than you were a year ago. Your family's still around. People aren't dropping like flies. And so what you're saying is then people see this hunting, consuming the meat, carrying on with their activities is not quite the threat to them yeah. as yeah. they thought when they first heard about it. So it kind of that their perception of the risk of what they're doing is declining. Right. CWD is still right. there. The prevalence rate might be increasing. It still can do the same thing to a wildlife population, but their exactly. fears of it are, are, are okay. No, that exactly. I, I think there's two pieces to that one. And, and you see this not only in, in CWD, but in other kinds of environmental risks. Um, 
people, their perception might change as they learn more about it, as they sort of live with it. They can also adapt to whatever that risk happens to be. So, you know, now they, they know to wash knives and other implements and bleach for so much time. They know to wait for the, they can wait for a test result to come back. Um, so that they can take other types of measures so that uh, they're not as concerned about the risks if there are any risks. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like COVID. <laughs> as, yeah, there's a lot well. of, there's a lot of similarities. That's, uh, now what, what are some of the things that you were finding um, with people's perceptions of the risk to humans? Um, Cause it, that sort of seems to ebb and flow in the literature right now that the, you know, the, the, you know, it hasn't crossed the species barrier and then there was some stuff with mice and then, and then it was kind of like, no, didn't actually. Ha- and then there was the macaw, you know, they got the, the crossed into the primates and, you know, so there's these little events have kind of been happening, you know, so have, have you been seeing, um, changes in perceptions of what the individual risk is to a human? Like, is this a threat um, to people? I mean, we, we haven't. We haven't seen that in the data so much in the kinds of questions that we ask. Um, and my, my colleague Ellen Goddard has been asking questions of the public in general about you know, risks from eating venison and chronic wasting disease. And there may have, maybe there's a bit more uh, uh, risk perception change in the, in the public, but they, they don't get a lot of news about chronic wasting disease. And you'll, you'll see the concerns pop up when there's a news story about finding of chronic wasting disease in a, in a deer farm in Quebec that sort of heightens some risks. Um, but we, have, we haven't seen those risk perception changes. I, I would say though that there, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, we, we do focus groups, I'll, I'll go to fish and game and give a presentation to some of the sessions. And, and there are groups of hunters that are really well informed that know about the study on macaques and, and the primate studies. They, they, you know, they're really keeping themselves well informed so that they are, are aware of what the latest science is. Um, so, you know, they're on one end that are really up to speed. And then there's, you know, the general population has some general knowledge of, of what's going on in the literature. And I often get that question. It's a really difficult one. It's a personal one that you have to address as to what that risk level is. Um, as far as we know, there are no cases that have, uh, have shown up in humans, but the public health agencies all advise people not to eat the meat before you have a test result. Um, and to take appropriate care and handling and such. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, it's that, it's that risk aspect that we don't know for sure uh, if or when uh, something like this will be zoonotic. Yeah. Now you were also looking at um, kind of uh, behavior and preferences around um, management options uh, that the yes. government would would be implementing um, that 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 was kind of interesting and that that I would you know kind of guess that that really strikes at the core of of some of your work right because you're right. you're trying to translate you know you know if policy a this is what you know behaviors would change the economic cost associated with it versus policy B. And then that, that information, um, would go to someone like Matt to, uh, yep. you know, to, to, to weigh out to make a final decision on. And, and so what, 
I mean, when it comes to management options, the different things, different levers that, you know, that can be pulled in chronic wasting disease management, what were some of the kind of things you were seeing? Yeah, so um, we looked at a lot of different options. And again, what, what we're thinking is that hunters can play a role in the, in the management of chronic wasting disease. And, and we ask them that question, you know, do you think you can? And yes, vast majority are interested in helping with the con conservation aspects of, of hunting and preventing spread and prevalence. So um, a lot of the programs that we asked people about were things that have been tried in the United States or uh, you know, have been tried to a certain extent in, in Canada. Um, additional tags. Uh, increasing the number of tags that are available in targeted regions so that you know you can have focused harvests in specific regions. Uh, expansion of hunting season, we looked at both you know, backing it up a little bit. The regular season is November, so backing it up into October a bit or moving it into December, trying to get a sense if, if hunters would um, spend a little bit more time hunting, maybe with an extra tag into December to help in a targeted harvest. Uh, we were trying to identify just trying to get people uh, to, to be more likely to submit heads with you know, prize draws and uh, gift cards that they would receive and things. So we looked at those kind of policies. Those are not very popular, actually, um, <laughs> among hunters. That wasn't one of the preferred options. Hats um, for heads. That. I think I think that's going on here locally. Hats for heads. Yeah, yes. I, I'm yeah. like, who yeah. needs another hat? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and, and even a few very specialized things. We looked, we looked at uh, special quota hunts. We looked at extra female tags. We looked at a three-point buck restriction. Um, none of those were, were super popular. The, the the ones that really hit home were the extra tags. So you know that, and that's it. that's good to know for us that that uh, that is an option. They're trade-offs, obviously. That you know that's going to have an impact on wildlife populations. They're other types of issues, but but that also helped us then do the kind of economic analysis that, you know, all right, if I had an extra tag, maybe I'd hunt for another couple, three days, that's some more activity that generates some economic value to me. And so that actually shows that there's some economic benefits associated with a program like that. Same thing with the uh, expansion of a hunting season. If that's something that um, people are interested in and, and would take advantage of, then there's some economic benefits that can be generated. And one of my uh, one of my PhD students, uh, Lucy Shea, is that that's her dissertation is really trying to understand the the economic benefits of these management changes and what what could we expect? Um, would it be beneficial economically? Would it also be beneficial in terms of wildlife management? So those were two that Alberta hunters identified that they kind of like preferred. Right? Was additional tags and um, now if I remember this right, you said there was extending the season, there was extending it, opening it earlier in the fall or having it go later in the fall. Right. And one was more popular than the other. Yeah. The December, this extending into December was, was more popular. And I okay. think, you know, there, there are a bunch of different reasons for that. Um, you know, moving it into October, people were saying starts moving into archery season. It can be too warm, you know, a few other things. But not everybody agrees. This is the story of, of working with people, right? People are different. So December, yeah, on average, that was better. Uh, but there are some folks that said, no, you know, it's getting too close to Christmas. I'm too busy already. So, uh, you know, that, that's why we, that's why we do the work is okay. to try to understand which, which one is preferred. And, but uh, but gen generally, 
people were like the average person was sort of saying they would like the season later in the year than yeah more tags and later in the season i can kind of understand that especially in alberta in the latter part of the fall is when you're getting into the prime whitetail deer rut where those big bucks are going to be coming out work so if you're going to extend the season i i could understand hunters wanting it a little later snow on the ground it's easier to you know track track and see things um now one of the other things that you sort of did did some testing on on hunter support was um this kind of willingness to pay thing um uh so, so a fee would be added onto the hunting license to cover some different aspects of chronic wasting disease management what what did you what did you ask their test and then what what did you kind of find yeah yeah that's so this is uh we've only done this once and we haven't actually uh, had this published or refereed yet so this kind of preliminary stuff and it actually came out of conversations that we had with with hunters and different sorts of focus groups or in uh, in public meetings and we started talking about well what if what if there was a way to get test results faster? So, you know, would you, would you be interested in finding some way to provide some funds to, to get the test results from the government faster or to get the test results? Maybe there could be some separate agency that had certified verifiable test results. Um, and then we also asked them about just funding additional surveillance or expanding the, the broader surveillance around chronic wasting disease and um, their, their, uh, their support I mean, not everybody supports this, and it depends what kind of a, a fee would be associated with this. But I guess the surprise, at least preliminarily, was that the thing that received the, the biggest support was the surveillance program. Yeah, and that, that's what really shocked me. So so when, yeah. when we say surveillance program, so that's, that's hunters submitting samples or heads from harvest, and they're either doing it more intensively and getting more data, or they're expanding their coverage in the province, making like more and more management zones. They're asking for head submissions because they're looking for like early detection in new management zones. So it's it's kind of it it's it's the wildlife managers surveillance is the wildlife managers way of of like figuring out what CWD is doing on the exactly. landscape, and they're exactly. using hunters and hunter harvest to give them that data. Yeah, versus, primer, primer. would you want your test results back quicker? And I I know I was doing some support work for the mandatory CWD head submission program last year here in British Columbia that that, uh, Kate and Helen were were managing here. And it's like every couple of weeks, like I'm getting messages and it's like, have you heard about the results come back yet? Like like people were just kind of like wanting to know, can I eat this? Can I eat this? And so... This one really surprised me in Alberta. Yeah, that... it, it, it surprised me too. And and here's what I think is happening. Um, we've talked about it a little bit. I haven't dug into it into it a lot. But of course, we, we asked everybody this. And um, for some folks, if you harvested a deer early in November, you get the test results back pretty fast. So, you know, maybe those folks say, no, I don't need the test results back. But I am worried about wildlife populations. And so... You know, maybe the surveillance program, you know, more freezers in other parts of the province for people to deposit heads, other kinds of things. Maybe that's more important. I think the surveillance program, because it kind of applies to everybody, whether you harvest or not, whether you've harvested early in the season or later in the season, uh, everybody benefits from the surveillance program because they're concerned about wildlife. Yeah. But the, the, the testing, I mean, yeah, I know a lot of people are unhappy about 
not getting their test results back quickly. And so if you're harvesting a deer late in the season and it goes into the queue because it's first in, you know, first come, first serve, um, you're waiting a while. And it's all going through the one facility at the University of Saskatchewan? Uh, I actually don't know the, the entire details. I think they, they do have, uh, that's one you'll have to check with okay. Marco Pipes yeah. about to, to be okay. sure on. But, yeah, because they are, you know, it does, British Columbia samples everybody. were going to Saskatchewan. Yeah, um, I wouldn't so be they, surprised. Yeah, it was a couple months. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we've had, we've had, when that was a question we asked, actually, um, how long did it take to get your head, your test results back? And when we do the surveys in January, February, there are people who still hadn't had their test results back. And some of them were waiting until, until March and after harvesting in late November. So, um, you know, it's, the, the program has limited capacity, so they can only process things so quickly and it's, you know, it's doing the best it, it can. But again, that getting the test results back faster um, is, is a concern for some people, a big concern, but not for everybody. Yeah. And I think that's what, why we're seeing that interest in the surveillance program relative to the getting your test results back. If I shot a deer in, in late November, um, and I'm expecting it's going to take a few months to get my result back, then, I, yeah, I might be pretty interested in a program to get it back faster. Um, but that would be just one person and not everybody. Yeah. Now, so give, give us a couple months to dig more into the data. We'll have a better answer. <laughs> now, it, these are probably preliminary as well, because there was some sort of like dollar figures attached to what hunters were willing um, yep. to pay for these additional um, um, aspects of uh chronic wasting disease management. So in, in the question of what would you, what would you be willing to pay on top of your hunting license to get faster testing results? If it was done through a public institution, uh, is this right? Hunter said about 13 more dollars. Yeah. That, that's the average. Okay. The, that, that would be about the average of what people would, would agree to paying for in a program. Like okay. That. Now to get your test results back quicker, if it was done by the private sector, like a private lab, what yeah. would hunters be willing to pay through a private facility to get them back quicker? And that was about nine bucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little less. I don't know if those two numbers are statistically. Yeah. Statistically I just, different. I pulled them off your presentation from earlier this yeah. month. So when you're saying yeah. it hasn't been peer reviewed or, or really data crunched, I, I can appreciate those are kind of like, you know, yeah. ballparkish, but, but the, but the difference here was, and this is what you're saying is hunters, willingness to pay more on their hunting license so more surveillance and monitoring could be done on the landscape was a, like an extra 20 bucks roughly yeah yeah and and that's quite a difference i think it's that, it's, that it's double they're that willing is. to pay yeah. more so science can be monitoring wildlife populations yeah. than thinking about themselves yeah and even even that difference between public and private on the on the getting the test result back faster that if that holds up, that, that that the public is bigger. I mean, I think that's another sign that people are interested in in supporting the the public approach to testing and the public management um, conservation approach. Which, and this is a bit of an aside, but that turns that turns out to be a really important issue within within wildlife management and acceptability of policies is trust within the agency that's managing the wildlife. You know, if you read the literature out of out of some places in the U.S reasons they say that the programs were not that successful is 
that the hunters didn't believe they'd be effective. They didn't have the same level of trust in the wildlife management agency that perhaps in other jurisdictions. And so it, it just didn't come together. If you're, if you're going to engage in these programs, you have to have that confidence and trust in the agency. That, that's a big part of, of risk management. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big part of the work you do in, in providing your studies back to the policymakers so they understand there's no sense in, in investing X dollars in a government program if everybody's going to fight the system and not like it and, you know, yeah. versus they might get a better bang for their buck to move a certain portion of the budget to a private institution and, and, and subcontract it out. But they need to know those types of things in in the in the type of work you do so yeah that's that that was a really interesting um um, part of the work you did on on uh hunter support for uh for those those two things now did now do i have this right um so that type of stuff looking at um hunter preferences hunter behavior um those things your you're getting data from like individual people, like you said, either through surveys or talking and right. that's sort yeah. of like what you are calling uh, individual data. Yeah, exactly. And aggregate data is the stuff you were talking about where you're looking at um, 10 years worth of um, hunters applying for draws and, and yeah. what's yeah. all of and that's aggregate, aggregate yeah, data. Exactly. So, so I don't know. I don't, I don't have an, an individual, I don't know whether an individual submitted a, a, a draw license uh, request, but I know that for a particular wildlife management unit in 2017, there were this many draws, draw requests. Yeah. So that's the aggregate data that, that I can look at. And and just to summarize that again, what you were finding uh, in Alberta is that even with the increasing prevalence of CWD, that there was still high demand or no impact on demand or actually increasing demand for, for draws, tag draws. That's that's right. And, you know, again, I think it could be exactly what you said before that people, they have their favorite areas. They're, they're putting in their application because they want to get that draw for their favorite areas. They've been going there for a while and uh, chronic wasting disease perhaps hasn't, hit the level where they're starting to change their their desired location or they're not as interested in or concerned about it. And so they keep applying for those regions. For those same and, regions, yeah. You know, that's one of the, could have talked about this earlier, one of the real challenges in in social science work, whether it's economics or others, is, is actually, uh, we call it identifying causality. Do we really know that a change in chronic wasting disease has affected behavior. Uh, we can't run experiments on people, right? Uh, so that, that's always, so we're always looking for ways of looking at data that can help us actually identify if something is causing something else. Gotcha. And yeah. Th- this, this, this is a challenge. And in, in a one year survey, I can't really tell if, if something is causing a change because I've just got one year of data in, in multiple years of data. Well, okay. Now I have a little better chance. It's not it's not a controlled experiment, but at least I could see there have been changes in the chronic wasting disease prevalence rates across time. So I've got something that's changing, and I can try to see if there's really a, a good scientific evidence of a change. 
not perfect yet, but at least it's moving a step in that, that direction. And that's one of the things, the biggest challenge we face as social scientists is trying to really identify that causal impact. Um, and that, that makes it makes us a bit different than um, people in natural sciences who might be able to run experiments. We have to rely on those observational data. Yeah, because with people, it's pretty hard to say, okay, we want to see if you're changing your behavior because your um, income status has changed versus you're learning more about the prevalence rate of CWD in your hunting zone. So we're going to take this random sample and we're going to get 50% of that sample. We're going to get you all fired. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then, exactly. And then exactly. see see how your behavior changes. It's like you can't do that to people, right? So. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and they do for medical studies, of course, there is exactly this kind of randomized control trial. And that's, you know, we hear so much of that about with COVID. And there are economists who do that with certain types of economic policies. But for something like this, it's just not possible. So, so there's always that kind of hesitation that any social scientist has to keep in the back of their mind are, are they really identifying a causal impact? And and having multiple years and multiple locations of wildlife management units helps us do that. Um, but we still have to keep that in the back of our minds so that, that it's not the same as running a, a medical randomized control trial for you know, a particular test outcome. Gotcha. Now, one of the other, now was this, you did, and you mentioned this earlier, you were also doing some work on non-hunters, the general public and some of their perspectives preferences and attitudes um, towards chronic wasting disease. Now, was that your work or one of your your students? Yeah, so it's it, it's mostly my, my colleague, Ellen Goddard. So okay, Ellen, okay. Is, Ellen is another uh, professor here who she's, she's done extensive survey work. Um, she's looked at uh, venison consumption and household food consumption data. So she's looked at a, a whole host of things that indigenous people's consumption of, of uh, various traditional meats. Uh, so most of this is her work. We've, we've done some things. Uh, I did some public surveys like this in the past, and we've been sharing questions and research. My other colleague, Brenda Parley, has worked extensively with Indigenous people on chronic wasting disease and some of their concerns. So, so Brenda and Ellen and another colleague, Marty Luker, have really done this. And Ellen shared some of those data with me, and I, I mean, I, I think they're really interesting. I think the two interesting takeaways from surveying the, the public is, one is that they are supportive of management options that involve hunters and providing you know, additional tags or other opportunities for hunters. And Ellen's been doing this over the years as well, um, about as long as I've been involved in chronic wasting disease. And we're seeing this increase in preference over time that there seems to be the public is more um, approving of management options that, that involve hunters engaged in whether it's head submission or targeted harvests or things like that. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah. So that's a really that's a really positive thing. I think that uh, you know we we think from a wildlife management agency's perspective. I mean, they're interested in whether the, the public would approve of the policy options that, that they might be taking, and you know these are some good signals. Again, not everybody approves, and there are certain groups that are are not in favor of some of these kinds of outcomes. Um, but the general public seems to be fairly supportive. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because we hear hunters talk a lot about how in, you know, certain situations in North America, hunting can be a management 
tool. Um, here's a very, you know, clear case when it comes to chronic wasting disease management that understanding where it is on the landscape, what species it is in, what sex it's in in the species, uh, and the level that it's at and how those trends are changing is all that data about what's happening is coming from hunters. Um, so hunt, hunting is wildlife managers, um, management tool in this this case and to see non-hunters supporting that and recognizing how that whole system works uh, I think is is really interesting because we do see in a lot of forums in in Canada where hunters are saying it's a management tool management populations and stuff and there's a lot of backlash from the non-hunting public going no just leave leave nature alone to do its own thing you don't need to interfere with it and um, so this was pretty cool um, that, that yeah. um, this research is yeah. saying like, no, people, people support how the data is being collected. So, and yeah, exactly. if the animals are test negative, then people have food and that's yep. obviously a support level as well. So yep. now there was a couple things I saw in the presentation around general public preferences, maybe touch on those a little bit and had to do with the public's sort of the, the change in perceptions about eating meat and chronic wasting disease getting into people there there was yet a little bit of work where you kind of looked at the change from 2009 to 2018 do you recall that yeah so there 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 are a couple of different things um it, it does appear that in the in the more recent surveys this is again ellen goddard's work that uh people are more concerned about chronic wasting disease having having a human health impact so they're they're more likely to agree with a statement like, I think chronic wasting disease could be transferred to, to humans. That's a perception thing again, yep. um, that, uh, that people are, are letting us know about. Um, again, why is, why is that happening? Un, unclear. It you know, could be, they've got more information about it. You know, maybe it's been in the news lately. Ellen's actually done some really interesting work with her students on um, using Google trends data to, to track how you, when you see CWD in news reports, does that change people's perceptions and you know, behaviors and venison consumption and things like that? So she's she's doing some really cool work on that side. But yeah, there does seem to be this this little bit of an increase in uh, in some of these risk perceptions in the public. Yeah, so the, it'll be fascinating so over the next year or two to see if you know all the COVID combined with are, the, yeah and zoonotic diseases and bats and you know yeah. all wet animal yeah. markets and all this kind of stuff. I, I would suspect yeah. if you reran this uh, and asked the non-hunting public about chronic wasting disease, um, there there might be a big spike in more people being more concerned that that it could could bridge bridge the um, the species barrier. Now, was it, was this part of the same work as well, where there was some there was some kind of interesting stuff around preferences, and it was breakdown by provinces in Canada. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. touch on that. This this yeah, one, so I find this is kind of cool. That's that's Ellen's work again, and that's you know one one of the ones that kind of jumps out is that uh, some of these risk perceptions uh, appear to be lowest in the provinces where there is uh, prevalence and, and spread of CWD, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, again, it's just descriptive data, so I haven't done all the hardcore tests on it, but that is, that is intriguing and you know, does suggest that you know maybe people's familiarity with these things leads to a different different risk perception. Yeah, so so in the pro Alberta, Saskatchewan that have 
more, we'll, we'll talk about Saskatchewan when there's a little bit of something different going on there, right? But the more a province had problems with CWD, the that's this is the general public or yeah. hunters. Yeah. The this general, is the general public. Okay, the general, general public, public yeah. was yeah. was less concerned about CWD and eating wild in, animals. In a human health aspect. Yeah, yeah. in a human yeah. health aspect. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then what what was what was going on in Saskatchewan? They were sort of like kind of doing the opposite, weren't they? Of what? Uh, the, I mean, in terms of the, the question about whether they have concerns about eating deer or elk, they, they were actually the, the lowest in terms of of the risk perception or is actually right. a, I think a, a slight net disagreement with that. The, yeah. That's what, it, that's what I recall so, is like pe so, people in Saskatchewan uh, were disagreeing with, yeah. with uh, CWD yeah. being, being a, a human health yeah. risk and pretty they've close, got pretty close to neutral. But, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's kind of like it started around that part of the, 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 the province and yeah. they have some of the highest, highest um, uh, prevalence rates. So that was kind of, kind of interesting. So yeah, well, you know, and as I say, that sort of lines up a bit with some of the work out of the U.S. that the that people who are living close to chronic wasting disease seem to have a, a lower risk perception or a perception that's declined over time. It's that seems to be that kind of familiarity and adaptability issue again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, the thing that I found really interesting about this, and I think this has bigger implications of why the human dimensions and the social science aspect is so important in conservation and wildlife management, kind of at this, this regional level, um, because so much of this comes down to like regional type preferences, regional type attitudes, regional, you know, um, policies that are going to work for a particular group of people. Um, and, and this is why I'm such a huge proponent of the social sciences and human dimensions and wildlife rather, you know, especially in Canada where our provinces and territories are so huge, geographically huge, and they're so culturally diverse and ecologically diverse to try to say like for the province, Alberta, the province of British Columbia, oh, this is the policy for X. You know, it's this, this really kind of speaks to the need to, I think, going, pulling these types of decisions back to a regional kind of community type level and understanding people and people behaviors and and doing things that work more locally. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think even go back to some of those questions that we ask people about where do you get your information from? Well, word of mouth is a, one of the most common ways to, to get information. And that just means people are in your area, you know, people that you talk with, people that you hunt with. And so it, I think that does lead to regional differences because we get a lot of information from talking to our neighbors and talking to people around us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, yeah, that's just, uh, some really interesting results that have come, come out of, out of Alberta. Now, one of the other things, like uh, if I write surveying the general public, um, there was some questions around sort of the do nothing policy option. Like, right. so there's there's right. CWD on the landscape, um, and of course, in any any type of you know you have option A, B, C. There's always the do nothing option. And what did when it come to CWD, what was kind of the findings around the public's thought on that? Yeah, I mean, it, 
do nothing is the least preferred by far option. I mean, the majority of people think we should do something. Hmm. Um, so, you know, do nothing is always on the, nobody likes the do nothing option. Yeah. So that, you know, that, that's a pretty clear message that people are concerned and think that some things should be done. They're not exactly sure what should be done. So there's a lot of things that they kind of give an equal weight to, but they really think some, something should be done yeah. um, around chronic wasting disease. Yeah, that that is interesting. Again, because I find that an interesting result because we do come, you know, we see this in the narrative a lot of, you know, people that are non-hunters or a segment of the non-hunting population is kind of like doesn't like this idea of of wildlife management, humans doing things to, to, to manage wildlife. And so, you know, when it comes to even diseases, I, I, I could see, and there probably still is, like even in, you know, there's probably some... When it comes to CWD, some people are probably like, no, we should just leave it alone, let nature take its course kind of thing. But but on, on average, more people in Alberta are saying, no, we the, the, the province should be doing something about it. Yeah, and that's true in the national studies too. Now, you know, they, they want something done, so they don't like the do-nothing option. Um, they're most supportive of what you might think of as kind of passive options, education programs, you know, other kinds of things like that. So that's sort of like, yeah, we should definitely do those. Not and, shooting from helicopters. Right, right. That, that, and that one's <laughs> definitely not a favorite. Um, but, you know, it ranges from really strong support from these passive options to support, not as strong for some of the more active ones like you know, management by licensed hunters and such. Hmm. Now there was a um, couple other things too in support about moving carcasses uh, between. Yeah. Uh, I would have to have to like between jurisdictions. Um, so yeah. listeners are probably going to know, but there there are um, concerns about interprovincial movement of of deer carcasses, cervid carcasses from hunters that go out of the province because the potential of bringing infected tissue back into the province, um, you know, is, is a risk. Yep. So, you know, a lot yep. of jurisdictions don't allow, um, you know, the unclean skulls, unbleached skulls, spinal cord, uh, brain, all that kind of stuff. Just, just yep. the meat can, can be brought back. No intact carp carcasses can, can be moved. So as a, chronic wasting disease prevention tool. Um, there were some interesting things in Alberta about support and not support about restrictions on moving carcasses. Yeah, that was, that was one of the ones that, um, um, and, you know, you could, I'd have to look back at the details of that one. This is work uh, mostly by uh, Jeff DeRoche and Marty Lukert so in, a, in one of the national surveys that Ellen Goddard was running. And, uh, you can think about it as transporting uh, carcasses across across provincial boundaries and such, but but even within a, pro a province, you know, should there be restrictions on uh, movement of carcasses and, and hunted hunted uh, products? And what they found was that the general public was supportive of restricting those kinds of movements, um, but hunters and landowners weren't supportive of that. So that's one of the ones where you you get some differences between what the general public thinks and, and what hunters think. In, in their work, I mean, things like using sharpshooters on public or private land, everybody's opposed to those. Yeah. But that one about, about movement of carcasses, that was one that we've got some different views from different groups within the public. 
So, so if I remember right, sort of like generally the public supported the notion of not moving where hunters and landowners didn't like that idea, of course, one's being, one's affected and has to do something. The other's like not, they they can just say yes or no, and it doesn't, no sweat off their back. But, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that is interesting. And, um, you know, I think that is, that is a really um, kind of important thing, you know, and especially when I look uh, where we are in British Columbia, we still still a CWD uh, free province. Um, it is very close to the border on the Alberta side and closer on the Montana side. Um, and I, I think you saw it there. I had wrote that article on yes. all the, um, the, the, the CWD positive deer that were popping up around the community of Libby, Montana. And Mm -hmm. as they increased their surveillance and started finding more and more and more deer, just like 50, 60 kilometers south of the BC border. And, um, what was really interesting about that, I got the data from Montana state fish and wildlife and like all those deer were like right in the community and, and around it. It's like, these were not, these are urban deer and they were all showing up. CWD positive uh, in a place they didn't, in fact, I think in Montana, they hadn't found CWD east of the Rockies, west of the Rockies um, until the, the, the one showed up around Libby. And um, I haven't heard anything and I don't think they know for sure. If I had to place bets, I would suspect that a CWD positive deer, an entire carcass was moved from eastern Montana to Libby, um, butchered, the parts were disposed, and urban deer got in contact with it, and the urban deer population got infected. And um, I think that, you know, like I said, if I had to put money on it, I think that's what happened in Libby, and that's why this whole topic of of moving carcasses is really, really uh, an important one for areas of North America that don't have it yet. So understanding who supports it and who doesn't is really critical in 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 what um, you know your colleagues' work is is showing, because especially if there's a lack of hunter support for moving intact carcasses they're the ones that are going to be doing it and yeah last year we had a case here in bc where somebody snuck a deer carcass from alberta intact right over to nanaimo on vancouver island before the Mm -hmm. conservation officers got it it wasn't a positive deer but it's like those are the types of things that happen when when you don't have support of hunters and but at least your work and your colleagues' work is showing that, so then that is something for policy workers to say, okay, well, this is we right. got to zero in on this. Right, and and I think the other side of that is that there's an opportunity then for adding information. You know, why why is and why is this important? What are the risks associated with these activities? So transports one. I mean, disposal of carcasses is another tough one. Um, you know, where do you dispose? How do you dispose? Who allows you to dispose? Where? Those those are challenging policy issues. Um, um, but trying to understand what what the education needs are something else that this kind of work can uh, can help yeah. fill out. The, the the sharpshooter one too was really interesting. Um, I can't remember if it was in Pennsylvania or Illinois, but they had done a um, a preference survey of what the public thought about the use of professional sharpshooters in reducing deer populations for CWD management, and, and it was the same thing like 
Nobody liked it. Hunters didn't like it. And the general public didn't like the idea of paid professionals. But the interesting thing was, uh, whichever one of those states it was, of the deer that hunters were harvesting and submitting, about 2% of the hunter harvest was CWD positive deer. The sharpshooters, for whatever reason, they're figuring things out. 11% of the deer they were harvesting were CWD positive. So they were doing a better job of identifying and picking off CWD positive deer. I don't know how they do it because everybody tells you that there's no visible symptoms. But even with numbers like that, people are like, no, just give hunters more tags and don't bring in these, these, these outsiders. And, and that's kind of the same, same thing. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think the, uh, I I have heard about that study. It is kind of interesting. I think the the thing that, that we could really benefit from are some, some really good studies that would say, okay, if we actually do this, um, what is, how effective is it? Do we actually see that there's a reduction in, in CWD or are we, are we stopping the spread of it? Um, there, there have been some of those kinds of studies, but I, my understanding is the, the evidence is kind of mixed. Uh, we, we could really benefit from something like that. You know, I know there's, there's work proposed around that front and uh, it'd be great to see it actually carried out. I think the other piece of the puzzle, the part that you know, if, if there was a group that I would want to work more with, it's landowners. Um, they, they play a really important role. Uh, depending on where you are in Canada, but they play a really important role in Alberta and in chronic wasting disease and management and hunter access and a whole host of things. So they're an important piece of the puzzle as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, I mean, it's very different in southern Alberta than it is where we live here in British Columbia because mm-hmm. we just have so much crown public land, um, but it's different. Um, hunting opportunities in Alberta are you know, very heavily tied to hunter access on, on the, on the private land. So, um, so is that the big element that you, in your mind, you think in, in landowners playing a role as hunter access? Um, I, I think, um, su- supporting the management aspects of it. So if there is going to be a, a targeted hunt, will you get actually approval from, from landowners to participate in this? Is there some way that they could support the management side. So we've asked a few questions around that because some of our some of our hunters are also landowners. So we've been asking some of them questions. And I know Marty and, and Jeff uh, in their work have been asking landowners as well. But that's one that I, if we're really going to do this with, with management input, and if it's going to be on private land, we're going to need landowner support and we're going to need to know how to design the program so that they can be supportive of it. Yeah. Especially, uh, I mean, I think that's important data too, when you think about kind of the dynamics of what we're seeing in various places in North America of large rural properties changing hands from, you know, generations of families that work the land to millionaires and billionaires that are buying these properties that live in, you know, they fly in in their jets and, you know, and this sort of stuff. Very very different, potentially very different people in their understanding of the land and wildlife and everything that's on it and stuff. And Mm. if they're sort of just saying like, nope, you know, just stay away from me. I don't agree with any of that stuff that that becomes a real challenge for public wildlife managers. If that ethos of landowners, you know, changes. And I've heard stuff like that down in the States around, you know, like in the Colorado and, um, the greater Yellowstone area and stuff where, um, 
hunters uh, can't get access to land anymore because this demographic of people that have bought these places has changed. Um, they're just refusing entry or they're, they won't allowing people to cross their private land to get to public land, you know, these, these types of things. So, um, yep. th that would some, that would be something in Alberta for sure. In Southern Alberta that would be on my radar screen is understanding landowner yep. attitudes and preferences to that. So, yeah, I think, I think you've just given me a good idea for a graduate student thesis that they can, uh, they can get to work on. I think, you know, and there have been some studies in other parts of Canada where the impacts of changing, uh, land tenure, you know, from owners to renters or different sizes of ownership, uh, what are the impacts on land use? And uh, this is a, a, a good, good question to study is how, how does that change access for hunters and, and wildlife conservation? Absolutely. Now, and, um, you talked a little bit about, um, in your presentation earlier in, in July, sort of about the effects of COVID and chronic wasting disease in hunting and, Maybe maybe impart a few of those those thoughts here. Yeah, for... so, so this is all all speculation. This, right? this is I mean, this is just this is you. You get you get the what's what's COVID. So I mean, what what do we think is going to happen? Um, you know, there's obviously been an an impact on on the economy. Uh, people have lost jobs. Is there sort of serious economic impacts? Um, what we have seen in the literature in the past is that uh, sometimes that that means that hunting activity increases. Uh, people you know, need to meet. They have maybe less demands on their time. Um, they've already got equipment. So, you know, we might, and, I, and I've heard anecdotally that there could be an increase in, in hunting activities um, because of some of the economic shocks that, that people are experiencing. So that's one question. We'll see. Um, there has been the literature that's shown that relationship um, in the past. Um, we've, we already talked a little bit about uh, what's going to happen with risk perception. I think it's going to be really interesting. You know, there is all the news about zoonotic diseases, as you said, and you know, people people have been reading a whole bunch about risks and measured in different ways. And so it'll it'll be fascinating to see what what the outcome is on on risk perception and heightened surveillance programs and such. Um, you know, maybe somewhat uh, somewhat selfishly, I'm concerned as well about the impact on research. There just there won't be as many dollars around. I think uh, you know we've, we've focused our funds and 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 appropriately so on, and getting people uh, incomes and paychecks and keeping them going. And so you know, I'm worried that there's going to be less work on the wildlife side or the human dimension side. Um, we'll see. But we've also learned a lot about just just the amount of co cooperation that can occur among researchers um, and the public joining forces and you know, chronic wasting disease management is really contributing to a to a public good and yeah hunters get enjoyment from from hunting and they get meat but they're also contributing to a, to a public good if they're saying yes i'll i'll help out with chronic wasting disease management that's the same kind of thing as you know people staying home because they're worried about public health or wearing a mask. They're contributing to that public good. And so there's a lot of parallels on that. And, we, and we've seen it happen on the COVID side. And I guess the optimist in me says we could see it happen on the wildlife side too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, budgets, uh, like you said, could could be a big one even for, for research budgets, but also just money available to to the agencies um, for stuff yep. like like CWD's yep. surveillance, right? I mean, we see all these huge stimulus packages, you know, going out uh, and 
you know, now all of a sudden it's kind of like, whoa, are they, you know, going to have money for freezers and people to pick up, you know, heads and actual paying for lab tests exactly. and stuff. So, yep. yeah, those are, um, yep. I haven't seen I, signals from that, but it's like it, it's a worry. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I was doing with that slide was raising a few things, some speculations and some potential concerns. And, and you know, also some things that we'll try to keep tracking as we keep doing research work, we'll, we'll see if there are changes in risk perceptions or other kinds of things that occur that, that are tied to this. I mean, I know one thing that will probably happen and I, and I think this comes back to part of our discussion about, um, you know, the support for, um, the support for surveillance over, over faster testing that if push comes to shove this year and there's budgetary constraints, I do believe hunting organizations across the province will step up uh, like they did here in British Columbia last year and, mm. and elsewhere, and they'll find ways to, to fund and keep, um, you know, head submission collection and all of that sort of stuff going. Cause I think, I mean, your research showed that, right? Like that is, um, pe people are putting surveillance and monitoring and science over, over faster testing. So, yeah. um, yeah. Ho hopefully we don't yeah. see budget cutbacks. Now, one of the things you said in your presentation, a lesson from, from COVID was kind of like the role of science communication, people adapting and cooperating. And, and um, yeah, that that's interesting. Do you think there's going to be a spillover effect into, into conservation wildlife management? Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's speculation, but what, what we've seen in the COVID world is really fascinating is that the, uh, you know, science has stepped to the forefront and it's got evidence and you know, recommendations based on science and, and information coming from the science communicators, the science professionals. And, uh, and uh, I think that's pretty refreshing um, to, to have that, that voice and that presence of scientific information. And maybe there will, you, you was, the spillover word is a great one to use. Maybe there will be that same spillover that people will look forward to scientific evidence uh, on chronic wasting disease or on wildlife conservation in general and, and look for those signals. Yeah, we've definitely, definitely been seeing that. Um, and, and, and I'm hoping uh, that in wildlife management, that that'll be some conditioning of, of people that'll play to our benefit of seeing science standing at the podium, talking about what the data says, and then policy, um, you know, um, sort of following behind so to speak daily communication clear communication plain language yeah. communication those those sorts of things um i saw i saw a meme that uh um one of the scientists we've had on on the show before he, he put on twitter and, and i followed him and it was a picture here in british columbia of our um uh our uh chief health scientist and she was standing at the podium talking and our minister of health was standing like behind her. And he said, yeah, he's a wildlife scientist. And he was like, this is the way it needs to be. Science is at the meet, at the mic speaking and policy is behind backing up the science. And it was just, it was classic. And that, I just, that's why I brought this up because I'm just hoping that's one of maybe the conditioning things that people will will see the value in when it comes to wildlife and conservation is is uh, is more people like yourself saying this is what our science is saying these are you know what people think of different management options and and yep. and decision makers really taking that into consideration so yeah no, I, I I think that's 
you know, I think that it's been a great environment within Alberta that we do have those conversations with the with the folks in the in the policy world and and work with them, and you know, they can ask us questions about things. It's a it's a tough job for them, though. I mean, they have to make difficult trade offs, and you've even seen in our data, it's not like everybody agrees. There are people with different views and different groups with different views, and. And so that, that that's a tough task. They can oh, absolutely. We can try to give them all the evidence that we have about certain outcomes and such, but but uh, they've still got a, t- a tough job to do in making those wildlife conservation decisions. Yeah, because a, a you know a policy decision maker like like Matt Basco, you could say, well, Matt, here's here's what my data is showing. On average, people are supporting this policy option, but he might know that the small people, the small portion of the population that, that's not part of that average that completely disagrees are going to be the ones that are phoning them and screaming at them and sending them nasty emails and stuff. So that's, you know, making, you know, um, um, political waves, all this kind of stuff. So it's like yep. those two things don't always line up uh, yep. for for a, for a, a decision maker. So it's... Yeah. Exactly, exactly right. Or they have to have, they have to know that, that they're going to be those groups that might not benefit from that policy and think about things that they can do to try to address that. Right. I think we've learned some things from the, from the COVID world that there's some groups that were really badly affected. And then there were all of a sudden policies that would kind of try to come in and lessen that impact, whether it's, you know, folks who work in grocery stores or healthcare workers or others. So that's just good policy to me to to try to, to try to expect those consequences from the different groups and then try to think ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without just sort of always doing everything to, to the bell curve and marginalize people. So whether it's Mm -hmm. society or wildlife management, yeah, definitely, definitely. Wow. This has been, uh, been super interesting um for our first economist uh on on the episode so you know i really hope uh hope people kind of maybe saw a whole kind of different side of uh wildlife management here and the value of um of folks like vic and people in the social sciences and stuff that support wildlife management decisions and kind of the types of things they look at and the value of of their studies and coming coming to the table and um, advocate for this kind of stuff, advocate for economists, advocate for, you know, people that study human behavior and stuff to be part of wildlife management. Cause that's kind of how we, you know, get objective policies in wildlife management. And we avoid things like that happened here in British Columbia and had, you know, misinformed public opinion polls that change, you know, the direction of grizzly bear hunting in the province based on, on, you know, sort of borderline Facebook comments almost, right, that changed policy. So um, support stuff like this, folks. Um, And stay on top of CWD uh, in Alberta. I advocate that you, you know, become a member of the Alberta uh, Fish and Game Association, uh, the the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, in Alberta, their chapter, uh, because these are the folks that are, you know, playing a role in that communicating um, information and disseminating that out, um, like, like Vic was talking about earlier in the show and working with your, you know, your elected officials to put input into some of these policy decisions and, Mm -hmm. and come up with some of these solutions that like you were just talking about that might be add-ons to the policy to, you know, to, to, um, 
you know, better implement it. So yeah, definitely be, be part of the solution, belong to some of those groups. Is there anything we yeah, missed great. in this conversation? No, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been That's really been, fun. I think, yeah, uh, it has. You know, yeah. I, I think, I think the main message from me as an economist is that there, there are just lots of things that, that we think are important in the world that don't usually get picked up by markets and, you know, most, most economic decision-making works on dollars and cents and things traded in markets, but the environment's important. And, and I've spent my career and many of my colleagues spend their career trying to say, how do we put those things on an equal footing on a level playing field that, you know, wildlife conservation, environmental quality, those things, how can we measure them against all the other employment impacts and consumer purchases and things that get used in decisions. And um, that's the gap we're trying to fill. And uh, it's a, I think increasingly popular part of the economics profession, which is also something that's good to see the recognition that environment is an important part of the, the economics world. Yeah. Yep. And, and vice versa. Yeah, uh, absolutely. No, I, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, come on the episode here and, and, uh, share some of your, your work and your colleagues work. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks and, um, Hey folks, if you, you know, if you want to, you know, uh, educate yourself a little bit more about, you know, chronic wasting disease, if you go back to, uh, last summer, uh, episode five of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is when we had, uh, Kate Nelson, uh, she's the, um, wildlife health, uh, biologist in British Columbia here that, uh, is looking after the BC chronic wasting disease program, um, and surveillance program. And that's a good episode to go back on before hunting season, give yourself a little bit of a refresher. Cause, uh, Kate talks a little bit about, you know, CWD itself the actual like prions and how it works and what it does and um that's some really good stuff to go back even even as a refresher if you did listen to it and um i've been putting a little bit of this uh out on social media as well that um here in southeastern british columbia uh where curtis and i are located that the hunter head submission for cwd surveillance in the kootenai region the southeast corner of the province along the u.s um, Canada border will be in effect again for the 2020 hunting season. So, um, we're getting some stuff out on our Facebook page, letting you know about that, but, um, it's basically the same gig as last year, drop off locations, you know, those sorts of things. So, uh, just want to make sure you're all aware of that. And, um, Curtis, any final things you want to throw in something going on? Final things. Um, that was a sweet podcast. I uh, a lot of a lot of information, but uh, I, it's cool. Those these we've done a few of these really heavy information ones, and as you know, as the co-host, I kind of sit back, and it's almost like I'm just listening to the podcast, and I just kind of you know take all the information in, and it's uh, no, it was it was really interesting, and uh, yeah, I, I I definitely enjoyed it. Good. Yeah. You know, Vic, it's one of the things uh, uh, our listeners have told us about our podcast. And this is kind of a really interesting kind of social science side of thing when you think about hunters listening to a podcast. Um, you know, there's entertainment. There's, you know, there's, you know, all these things uh, in, in every sector. And in hunting, there is like entertainment. There's, you know, the half hour television shows of 22 minutes of, you know, hunting shows and this sort of stuff that you know, people can see a, a 10 day hunt in 22 minutes and, you know, concludes yep. and, you know, everything's, you know, all high fives in this. 
but the number one thing that people tell us why they listen to this podcast is because they're using it as a tool to learn and educate themselves. And that's why talking to experts like yourself and doing them in fairly long shows, people like that. Um, They are using this tool to learn, not to just laugh and entertain themselves. So. Yep. Thank you very cool. much. Uh, that's yeah. great. No, it's much appreciated. Well, and I, you know, folk, folks uh, can easily find me to, if they do have a question or something, they want to send me a note. I can't we'll, promise a super fast response, but uh, I'm pretty easy to find on the net. We will, uh, we'll put a link uh, in our show notes. So to make it yeah. easier for people to find you and, <laughs> and then we'll also put a link to your, um, your presentation. Um, uh, the Sidrap presentation, because uh, then if you want to go listen to uh, Vic explain this stuff again, he he's actually got the visuals, like some graphs and some charts and some maps of Alberta where different things are going on. So um, visually, it may um, you know may help you out a little bit on on some sure. of the things he was talking about. So we will do that uh, for you. And thanks again, Vic. Yeah. Okay. Much appreciated, guys. Thanks. All right, everyone. We will see you in the next episode.